Enjoy the peace. If you want to have no peace, go somewhere else. I, uh, I'll be a Christian next month, uh, 20 years. And a man looked at me one day inside a police car. And uh, I was in the front seat, not in the back. Um, and he, he said to me, why are you a Christian? I said, because of the peace. And he goes, what do you mean by that? I said, well, it's something that transcends all understanding. Enjoy the peace of the Lord and the peace of the Sabbath. Pastor Terry and Pastor Diane are out of town enjoying a much well-deserved sabbatical on vacation. Uh, they asked me to teach this morning. Very thankful for the opportunity. If I haven't met you, my name is Scott Doby. I'm a military chaplain. I'm the wing chaplain for the 131st Bomb Wing in Whiteman Air Force Base and also up here at uh, Lambert Airport. And um, thankful for the opportunity to share the word with you. If you have your weapon, if you have your weapon, let's see some weapons this morning. How many people got a weapon? I work for the bomb wing. We fly B-2s. We carry nuclear weapons, the most powerful weapon on earth, but it can't compare to this. There's nothing that can compare to this. We're going to be, our text will be specifically the book of Luke, our context, Luke chapter 12. I'm reading from an NIV text. We'll be our whole time in this chapter only. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that some people can go through life and accomplish incredible things and other people are just stuck? Why is it that some people get knocked down in life and they get back up and some people get knocked down and they're down for years or even decades? It's a very real thing. What's the most dangerous, toughest state to live in? I believe the most dangerous state to live in is the state between fight and flight. Because you can't go through your entire life knocking people to the ground that make you mad. And you can't go through your entire life running from problems. Guess what? Sooner or later, you've got to deal with those problems. How many people have problems? If you don't have any, come see me. You're more than welcome to mine. I've got ample the hardest thing to deal with in life is people. Can I get an amen? amen? And if you haven't had a chance to deal with any hard to get along with people, come see me. I know their address. I'm related to them. That's right. The hardest thing you'll ever do in life is deal with people. I don't care who you are whether that is your biological relatives, that is those lovely people that you work with on a daily time, or the people that you answer to, or co-workers, or family, or friends, the hardest thing for us to deal with is people. And yet, you've got to move forward in life. How can you do it? One word, one word only, and that one word is resiliency. You have to learn what it means to be resilient. Once you get knocked down, you have got to get back up. And you're going to get knocked down. If you have not been knocked down in your life before, you were there. You just didn't realize it because you were in such a denial. If you drive in St. Louis traffic, sooner or later, you're going to experience the lovely people that you get to share the planet with 
So it's very real. What I want to do with you this morning is look at the perfect word of the Lord and look at what our Lord and Savior has to say about this word resiliency. If you're a note taker and you need some new tools for your toolbox of life, here's a few tools you might want to write down. What makes a person resilient? Number one, the resilient person is on his guard against hypocrisy. Number one, the resilient person is on his guard against hypocrisy. Reading Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, I'm reading from an NIV text which states this. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. And after that, do you know more? Verse 5. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, comma, I tell you, comma, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, question mark, yet none of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than sparrows. What does it mean to be resilient? It means, number one, to be on your guard against hypocrisy. Take note of what our Lord and Savior says that in that verse 1, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The word yeast in this context comes from a Greek word, Z-Y-M-E, zyme, and it is used figuratively to represent evil, sin, which perpetuates or penetrates rather, and it's what hiddens and comes into people's life. The word hypocrisy in this context comes from the Greek word hypocrite or hypocrite, which means to act as a hypocrite, a counterfeiter, or a pretender, or an actor. It's a fake. It's a fake. It's not the real thing. It's an actor. It's a pretender. There's nothing to it. Our Lord and Savior Christ tells us that through the perfect word here, to be on our guard against the yeast which is evil or sin of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, meaning the counterfeit or the pretender ways. Be on your guard against those kinds of people that would spread evil and sin, acting as counterfeiters, acting as pretenders. Don't just go through your life with blinders on. If you do, you will end up on the ground for a much longer period of time. The resilient person guards against hypocrisy. As Christians, we should not confuse this with Christ's words on judging other people. Two totally different things. Our Lord and Savior told us, do not judge or you will be judged. Luke chapter 6 states this in verse 41. Why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Something the way our Lord could sum things up. Judging other people in a biblical context means that we must have addressed our own issues before we go after someone else's. Does that make sense? We must be aware of our own counterfeit or pretender ways, 
our own version of acting. The difference between judging others and guarding against hypocrisy of the Pharisees is just that the believer needs to be aware of his or own sin before the believer addresses someone else's. The problem in our society today is that we, we is plural, that we as Christians do not want to address any form of hypocrisy anywhere in our world. And our excuse is this, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to judge. That's two totally different things. You realize if you didn't have accountability that this nation would be total chaos? Does that make sense? It would be Katrina, New Orleans, every day of absolute total chaos. Brother and sister in the Lord, you have to be on your guard against hypocrisy. If it's a lie, it's a lie. If it's evil, if it's evil. If it's filth, it's filth. If you're somewhere and somebody is slinging it to you so deep, what makes you so sure you've got to sit there and listen to it? Oh, I don't want to judge. It has nothing to do with that. And I don't care if the lie comes out of your own residence, if the lie comes out of my house, state government of Washington, D.C., if it's a lie, if it's a lie, if it's evil, it's evil. No matter where it comes from. You know, one of the things that we hate about the media today is that they throw it up into our face, the things that are wrong with this world. Now, obviously, they've abused their power. Nobody doubts that. But they throw it up into our face, the hypocrisy at all levels. Brother and sister Lord, if it's a lie, don't go along with it. You don't have to, no matter where it comes from. So number one, be on your guard against hypocrisy. What makes a person resilient? Number two, the resilient person separates themselves from others' agenda. The resilient person separates themselves from others' agenda. Luke 12, reading verses 13 through 21, which state this, caption the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance between me. Jesus replied, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. When you get up in the morning, you've only got so much mental, physical, and emotional energy. Let me ask you a question. Who got it that day? What did it go towards? Somebody's going to get it. Number two, be on your guard and beware and be prepared to separate yourself from others' agenda. Notice our context is this of verse 14. Jesus states, Man, who appointed me as judge or arbiter between you? Someone is trying to pull Jesus into their agenda. Verses 15 through 21, Jesus not only acknowledges that the agenda was greed, 
But he, Jesus also teaches a parable about the agenda of greed. Church, take notice of this, to this principle that Jesus exemplifies in his life. Jesus separates himself from others' agenda. Now keep in mind the context of this day. Everyone knew the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law specifically said that if you're the firstborn, you get a double portion. If you're every child after that, you get a single portion. That was the law. Everybody knew what the law said. And yet, hey, Jesus, tell him to give me more is what's basically being said. Hey, Jesus, I don't care that you're the Son of God. I don't care that you've got an agenda. I'm going to suck you into mine. Jesus, straighten my brother out basically what that boils down to. In fact, this is a powerful principle in Christ's life. Notice that Jesus acknowledges the hypocrisy in this chapter, verses 1 through 12. In verse 13, then he separates himself. The Pharisees had their agenda, counterfeit and pretender ways, pure hypocrisy. This man has his agenda here. He does not. Notice what Jesus does. He does not waste his time trying to force the Pharisees to stop their hypocritical or hypocrisy. Or he does not try to change them. In fact, many times Jesus doesn't even waste his time. What does he do? He keeps right on moving. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty called him to share the gospel, not be babysitters. Christ is not a babysitter. You want to know why our churches do not work nationwide anymore in this nation? I'm a military chaplain. Last year I spoke in three totally different denominations. You know why our denominations aren't working anymore? You know why our churches don't work anymore nationwide? You know why people are stuck? Because they've got everybody else's agenda but God's. It's just that simple. And I don't care if the book is on the New York Times bestseller list. That is irrelevant. Do you have God's agenda for your life? That's what it boils down to. Because if you've got God's agenda, then you can move forward and do great things. Whose agenda do you have? Do you have God's? Do you have yours? Do you have your parents? But Scripture says, honor your father and mother. Yes, it does, as the Ten Commandments. And our Lord and Savior did that up until the time he turned 30. Then what did he do? He preached. He did what God had called him to do. He still showed his mother respect. But he moved forward and did what God had called him to do. Whose agenda do you have this morning? Do you have yours? Do you have Jesus? Do you have one off the New York Times bestseller list? You're going to have to, and I have to on a daily basis, separate myself from everybody else's agenda. Does that make sense? Let's move forward. What makes a person resilient? Number three, the resilient person receives acceptance from God. The resilient person receives acceptance from God. Verses 22 through 31. Verse 22 in your caption is, do not worry. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, about your body, or what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than the birds. Who of you can... Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. 
They do not labor or spend, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you will need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. The resilient person receives acceptance from God. The theme of these two paragraphs is the fact that people were spending their time worrying about their food and their clothes in verses 22 through 25, because God will provide these for you in verse 31. Take note of the original statement in the original context 2,000 years ago. Let me tell you, in those days, you were worried about your clothes because clothes were incredibly expensive, and you didn't go down to schnooks to get your food. You either raised it or produced a trade that you could swap and barter for it inside the old city during the day. So your life revolved around your ability to raise that crop, barter with that crop, and your life revolved around your clothes to stay warm at night. Especially if you took somebody's cloak, you were supposed to give it back before the sun went down. Why? You needed to stay warm. But that was for the unbeliever. The believer comes to the realization that it's God that sends that rain upon that crop that it's God provides for my civilian job or my military job and I'm able to pay the bills so I can buy the clothes. But notice the context and notice another principle or application that can be drawn from these two paragraphs and that is receiving acceptance from God. Jesus states, Do not worry about your life, your body, or what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Church, take notice that every commercial on TV is trying to entice you with one simple thing, and that is it's the principle of comparison. They want you to compare your life and what you wear to somebody either on Madison Avenue or somebody out in California. Everything they show you is the principle of comparison. And if you look like this and you dress like this, guess what? You're accepted by the crowd. TV and its advertisers want you to compare yourself to the models on TV and the actors and what they're wearing so you'll buy their product. If you buy their product, then you're just like everybody else and you're accepted into the world. But listen to me here one moment. Ladies, not every woman on the planet is meant to be a size 2. What up with that? Not everybody is supposed to look like an anorexic model that hadn't had a good hamburger in weeks. Are you kidding, man? Me and my wife are flipping through the channels the other night. I said, man, look at that poor kid. You turn her, poor child turns sideways and you can't see her. But she's the latest it thing. Men, I'm going to let you in a little secret. You're not supposed to look like Charlton Heston. You're not supposed to look like the new James Bond. The previous James Bond, somebody asked him, what do you think about the new movie coming out? That they're getting ready to make another Bond movie. And he said they hadn't called me. Why? Because they hired a different Bond. He got looking too old. Don't you know, he had ticked him off. <laughs> Listen to this. Look at verse 31 again. Hang with me here. Verse 31. But seek the kingdom, and these things will be given unto you. Young people, anybody here in high school getting your fair share of abuse? 
Anybody here in middle school? You need to realize something. High school is only four years of your life. And if you're not in the in crowd, consider it to be a blessing. Because that's some place that you realize is not working anyway, and God's not called you to be a robot. It's just that simple. I work for a civilian organization as well, and a man walked up to me one day and he said, Mr. Doby, can I talk to you? And I go, yeah. And he goes, I'm just not in the clique here. And I go, dude, consider it a compliment, man. I would take that as a compliment because I've seen the clique here and they ain't really got their act together. Just that simple. If the world accepts you, I would be worried about that. Especially since our Lord and Savior tells us in, our per- in this perfect word that we're to be what? Peculiar, different, called out. Look at the prophet. Where do you find the prophet in the Old Testament? Normally off by himself, speaking to a crowd, but never in the clique. And we get so worried about safety in numbers. Let me tell you, the only place where there's safety in numbers is in a barroom brawl, and you shouldn't be there anyway. The only time that I went to a barroom brawl was when I was a cop and I went in with a loaded shotgun. You're not going to be accepted by the world. And if the people you're working with do not accept you because you're a child of God, consider it a compliment. They didn't accept Jesus. And He was trying to save them. Get your acceptance from God. You're never going to buy enough clothes. You're not going to have all the pretty cars. It's not going to happen because you can't buy enough. Get your acceptance from God. That's what it means to be resilient. Number four, the resilient person takes the initiative. Pardon the foul language. Number four, the resilient person takes the initiative to work. I know that's a dirty word today. Takes the initiative to work and watch. To work and watch. Let's read verses 35 through 44. Verses 35 through 44 state this. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that, when, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and will come to wait on them. It will be good for those servants who master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not let the house be broken into. Verse 40, you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, here we go. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Verse verse 42, the Lord answered, Who then is a faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Pardon the foul language. He's supposed to be working. Work is a dirty thing today, isn't it? It's a dirty, foul word. 
What makes a person resilient? Number four, the resilient person takes initiative to work and watch. Jesus, once again, is teaching his disciples and telling others a story in that verses 34 through 40. Jesus draws an analogy between himself, between himself returning in the rapture and the master of the home returning from a wedding banquet. Peter asks, Jesus, who is this parable meant for? So Jesus, in verses 42 through 48, describes in detail the parable and who it's meant for. Look at this. The parable in Christ's explanation of the parable can be applied to two different groups of people. And there's only two. Number one, the first group of people is those who, verse verse 38, it will be good for those servants whom the master finds him ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. This is the group of resilient people who take the initiative to work and watch. We're here to work. The core principle of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve was put there to what? Tend the garden. Tending is working. It's the production of perspiration from our foreheads. It's the first group of people. We're here to work. The second group of people is verses 45 through 46, which chooses not to work but abuse others around them and not prepare himself for the master's return because the master is returning. As a kid and as a, when I became, I say as a kid in my early 20s, at 23 I became a Christian and somebody looked at me and goes, I've heard that my whole life about this Jesus returning. He's returning. Not, on your, not in your agenda, not on your timetable, but His. This principle of the resilient person taking the initiative to work and watch can be observed in the life of Noah who built the ark in Genesis 6. How long did it take to build the ark? How long? Didn't happen overnight. This principle of the resilient person taking the initiative to work and watch can be observed in the life of President Gerald Ford. President Ford is a child. His biological father was an alcoholic. He abused his mother continually. His mother was beaten by his father. So Ford could have used as an excuse not to work, not to make anything of himself, and yet he chose to work and watch and be resilient. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care if you hate the man. But you know what? He went to work. And as a teenager, he worked in the local store. And he worked. It wasn't a woes me. He worked. And then his mother found a man that would honor her. And then she adopted him. He is now the most famous adopted child in our nation because he rose to the presidency. And he cleaned up a mess that nobody else wanted to clean up. Abraham Lincoln is another great example of resiliency. As a child and as a teenager, Lincoln's father worked him as a slave and he hired him out to work and to function as a slave on other people's farms. And yet Lincoln separates himself from his father. Lincoln acknowledges his own father's hypocrisy. Lincoln takes the initiative to what? To work. To watch. And what did he do when it came his time? He abolished slavery. He abolished slavery. He worked. We're here to work. We're here to watch. It's an aspect of resiliency. If you get knocked down, it means you're normal. Get back up. Go to work. 
Take care of your family. Honor God. God will honor you. Honor your spouse. Your spouse will honor you. What makes a person resilient? Number five, the resilient person knows that division is a norm. Let me say that again. That division is a norm. Verses 49 through 53 being spoken by who? Our Lord and Savior who? The Prince of Peace. Who came to do what? Listen. Verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? Question mark. No. Comma. I tell you, but division. He's come to bring division. Here's a leader who's not worried about being liked. Boy, isn't that rare. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother. The resilient person knows that division is a norm. In these brief verses, Jesus explains that complete dedication to Him would bring about rejection, possibly from even one's own family. And this is the norm in many Jewish and Muslim families. When one of its members, he or she, dedicates her life to Christ, the family rejects them totally. In fact, in some of these cultures, they have your funeral. You're still alive. Guess what? They're having your funeral because you are dead to them because you have followed the ways of the Christ, Meshua. You're dead. Church, if you follow these few principles of resiliency in the perfect word of the Lord in chapter, this chapter, number one, of guarding against hypocrisy. If it's evil, it's evil. If it's a lie, it's a lie. If it's garbage, it's garbage. Guard against it. Separating yourself from others' agenda. Taking the initiative to work and watch. Then division will be a norm in your life. Now, you need to understand the context that he's saying about division here. That's division between the believer and the unbeliever. There's going to be division between the believer and the unbeliever. Why? Because we've been called to follow the Lord, not which the direction the wind blows ever so often, or the media is telling people to believe, or Hollywood is telling people to do this or that. Jesus has not called us to save the world. That's his job, and they killed him for it. It's our job to work and watch and realize that we will not be able to make everybody happy. You're not going to be able to make everybody happy, much less be accepted by them in their standards. Division is a norm between the believer and unbeliever. That's just what it boils down to. You're not going to be able to make everybody happy. Understand that division. Now, that has nothing to do with somebody bringing division into the local church body. Anybody brings division to the local church body, that's not of God. That's pure sin. That's pure filth. I don't, give a, I don't give a flip what they tell you. It's like I say in a military environment that I get away. I don't give a crap. Okay? Oh, but it's on the New York Times bestseller list. Woo! If it produced division in the body, it's divisive. It's not of God. There's not supposed to be division within the body. 
There's supposed to be division between the believer and the unbeliever. Anybody who brings division or brings something in that is divisive is not of God. Oh, but it's a revival over there. Oh, it's this book over here. It did that. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. There's a difference between a good thing and a God thing. If you want a good thing, or you want a happy thing, you go down to McDonald's and get you a happy meal. I don't care what people tell you. If the fruit of it is division, it's not of God within the body. Or within your family at home, within a body of Christians. Or between a marital covenant between a man and a woman. Realize division is a norm. You've got to get that. But not between the members of the body. I'm not sure this church likes to worship a certain way. And sure, that church down the street worships in a different way. That's aspects of culture. As a military chaplain, work, I've worked in chaplaincy now for over 17 years. You know? I've been in all different types of churches where they're very, very, very quiet. Or they're running up down the aisle and they'll tell you right up front, if you give us enough money, we'll swing from the chandeliers, but you're going to have to buy the chandeliers. That's an aspect of culture. It's an aspect of the way the individual wants to worship within the individual body. But if somebody's bringing division within the body, it's not of God. It's that simple. Brother and sister and Lord, our nation is divided for a reason. The elections are coming. And this year will be war on the incumbent like all these type of elections are. But look back at the election between Gore and Bush and President Clinton said, I have no idea what's going on here. It doesn't take a rocket science to realize that this nation is divided right up the middle on ideology. Division is a norm. Once again, it's a norm. What makes a person resilient? Number six, the resilient person knows, and this is the last part of this, finishing up Luke 12, the resilient person knows that he or she will be, more foul language, the resilient person knows that he or she will be held accountable for his or her actions. We used to call this years ago hellfire and brimstone. I don't know what the current trend they call it today. You're going to be held accountable for your actions. I'm held accountable for actions. As a minister, I'm held accountable of what I'm saying today in front of you. Not just by Pastor Terry and Pastor Diane, who I submit to as my pastors, but also by the Lord God Almighty. I'm going to be held accountable. Look at this in verses 54 through 59 as we finish this chapter. He said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you do not know how to interpret this present age? That is the Messiah, Jesus, preaching the gospel to them. Verse 57, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to reconcile to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Number six, what makes a person resilient? It's knowing that you're going to be held accountable for your actions. We all are. 
Jesus Christ draws upon two separate analogies about interpreting the times and the context of chapter 12 of his return. Verses 54 through 55, the analogy is that of the people who can interpret the weather and to know it's going to rain, it's going to be hot. In verses 57 through 58, the analogy is that of the person who is going to court and about to get thrown into prison. Jesus uses these illustrations to describe examples of people interpreting the times and their situations because just as these people know that they can interpret the times, they had better realize that the time of Christ's return for accountability could happen at any moment. It can happen at any moment. Isn't it amazing how you can pack out a church real quick? All you have to do is put out on the front of the sign, teaching on Revelation tonight, church packs out. Isn't that amazing? This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And we're the closest generation. And Israel's a nation, 1947. And we've reclaimed back the mountains there in 1967. And those mountains have now produced fruit, 1971, 1972. And now they're trying to lay the cornerstone to build the great temple back to offer the sacrifice. And what has to come to that great temple? You know, sign of the times. But people are so pumped about reading and going, ooh. But nobody realizes that accountability is coming. It's not going away. Accountability. Jesus uses these illustrations to describe the examples of how people interpret the times, but yet... They can know the weather, you know. They can know what's about to happen about this or that, and yet they don't realize and look around and see what's happening. The resilient person knows that he or she will be held accountable for his or her actions by God. So we as believers, we can confess our sin because we are forgiven. We can continue on and bounce back. Church, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know your past. You don't know mine. If you haven't been knocked down in life, you will be. The question is, are you going to get right back up? The question is, are you going to allow yourself to continue to get sucked into the agendas of others? Does Hollywood drive the agenda at your house? That's what the commercials are about. That's what the shows are about. What drives the agenda at your house? When you get up in the morning, you've only got so much mental, physical, and emotional energy. Who got it? Where did it go? Did it go toward what God has called you to do? Or did it go towards a relative who has got their agenda for you, use you as a puppet because they don't want to grow up? Or did you follow what God asked you to do? There are a few aspects of resiliency from this Luke 12. The resilient person guards against hypocrisy. If it's a lie, it's a lie. If it's hypocritical, if it's a hypocrisy, if it's evil, it is. Number two, the resilient person separates himself from other people's agenda. Number three, the resilient person receives acceptance from God. Number four, the resilient person takes the initiative to work and watch. And number five, the resilient person knows that division is a norm. And last, the, the resilient person knows that he or she will be held accountable. What does he or she do? He or she moves forward. Are you stuck today? Are you stuck today? Where are you at? 
I have a nasty habit of making people mad at me. It's not the fact that I go looking for a fight, because I don't. In 1994, I was down at Fort Rucker when I wore the Army uniform, as now wearing the Air Force uniform. And I was one of the first chaplains in the building, and a guy looked at me, and he said, Oh, hey, you're that new chaplain. You know, all good chaplains are involved in Boy Scouts. I parted his hair right down the middle. I par- and let me tell you, if you're involved in Boy Scouts, I have the utmost respect for you, because I think Boy Scouts is a fantastic thing. It is. It's awesome. Is what it can do. Girl Scouts the same with the foundation that can be placed in a child. But I know one thing is only 24 hours in a day. People call me all the time. Goes, hey chaplain, hey Scott, can you do this or this or this? I go, no, 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 no. They say, how can you tell me no? You ain't even prayed about it because uh, I know what God has already called me to do. Amen. Doesn't mean I'm better than anybody else. Ooh, I assure you, I am not. But I know what God has called me to do. I don't have time to sell Amway. I have the utmost respect for Amway. It's a great, great thing. And if God called you to sell Amway, hey, sell it. You know? Take up your cross and follow me. There's only one Jesus, but the crosses are custom fit. Carry your cross. What's God called you to do? Because when it's all said and done, that's what you're going to be held accountable for. It's like I told the gentleman at Fort Rucker. I have nothing against Boy Scouts. But God's called me to do this and this and this. And somewhere in there, there's got to be some exercise and got to be some sleep. Because that's just the way the body works. What's God called you to do? If you're here today and you'd like somebody to pray with you, I'd like our altar workers to come forward. If they would, please. Our people who are altar workers. If I could have... A man and a woman on this side is an altar.